Chapter six of Mars is My Destination by Frank Belknot Long. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. Chapter six. We were not the only passengers in the eight cabined forward section of the big skyship which had been assigned to us, but it had taken us almost a week to get acquainted. To get really acquainted, that is so that we could relax and feel at ease and really enjoy one another's company. We were sitting in lounge chairs on the long promenade deck that ran parallel with all eight of the cabins, staring out through translucent crystal at a wide waste of stars. Sitting in the first chair was a tall, sturdily built man of thirty-eight, with keen blue eyes and a dusting of gray at his temples. His name was Clifton Maddox, and he was an electronic engineer. He had stories on tap that could turn your hair white, because he had been to Mars and back eight times. Seated next to him, with her hand resting lightly on his arm, was a woman in her early twenties, with honey-blonde hair and eyes that held unfathomable glints and an enigmatic ingenuousness that could keep a man guessing in an exciting way. Her name was Helen Melton, and she had eyes only for the man at her side. She had managed to make of the trip a continuous honeymoon, despite a few lovers' quarrels, and the stern exactions which her work as a medical laboratory technician had imposed on her. I mention these two because they were fairly typical of the group as a whole. They were all unusual individuals, the kind of people you take a liking to straight off when you meet them casually at a party, and exchange a few words with them that you keep remembering for days. Joan and I sat in the last two chairs on the promenade deck, a little apart from the others. Joan was deep in a book, and a little weary of talking, and I was thinking about robots. The robots were a story in themselves, a story that could bear a great deal of retelling. If right at that moment I had had a son, a bright and eager lad of six or eight, I'd have set him on my knee and talked about the robots. The five hundred passengers in the big sky ship were not alone in this long journey through interplanetary space. In the last years of the twentieth century, I'd have taken pains to make very clear to him, and in the early years of the twenty-first, a great new science had grown from an infant into a giant. The science of cybernetics of giant computers that could do much of man's thinking for him, on a specialized technological level, had transformed the face of the earth and was continuing to transform it at a steadily accelerating pace. The rockets for giant computers were of the newest and most efficient type, humanoid in aspect, with conical heads, massive metal body boxes, and three-jointed metal limbs, which had all of man's flexible adaptability in the carrying out of complex and difficult tasks. Robot-like and immense, they towered in the chart room with their six-digited metal hands on their metal knees, their electronic circuits clicking, their tiers of memory banks in constant motion, but otherwise outwardly indifferent to the human activity that was taking place around them. Four metal giants in a metal rocket, functioning cooperatively with man in the gulfs between the planets, might have made an imaginative fiction writer of an earlier age catch his breath and glory in the fulfillment of a prophecy. 
an H.G. Wells, perhaps, or an Olaf Stapledon. But the reality was an even greater tribute to the human mind's inventive brilliance than the utopian dream had been. The four giant computers were capable of solving problems too technical for the human mind to master without assistance, usually with astounding swiftness and always with the more than human accuracy of thinking machines, whose primary function was to correlate without error the data supplied to them on punched metallic tapes and to perform intricate mechanical tasks based upon that data. The robots were tremendous, by any yardstick you might care to apply, and if I had had a son, I stopped thinking about the robots abruptly and sat very still, listening. A sound I'd heard a moment before had come again, much louder this time. A chill, unearthly screeching. The chart room was just outside the eight-cabin section, and I could hear the sound clearly. My nerves again? My overstimulated imagination? In space, strange and unusual sounds are as common as pips on a radar screen. It was queer how quickly you got used to them. You had to walk around with your ears plugged up, in a sense, but the plugs didn't have to be inserted. They were just natural growths inside your ears, invisible and without substance. But plugs notwithstanding, they produced a kind of psychosomatic deafness, which didn't otherwise interfere with your hearing. Just the very unusual sounds, the totally inexplicable raspings, dronings, creakings, usually of short duration, were blotted out. You didn't hear them unless something deep in your mind whispered, This one is different. This is an emergency. Take heed. The screeching was very different. It was like nothing I'd ever heard before, on Earth or in space. The others must have heard it, too, for it had been too loud the second time, to be ignored. But apparently that strange acceptance of strange noises in space, which goes with the kind of deafness I've mentioned, had only been shattered for me. The six men and women in the lounge chairs had looked a little startled for a moment and exchanged puzzled glances, which meant, of course, that they had heard it despite the mental earplugs in some inner recess of their minds but that didn't prevent them from shrugging it off and resuming their conversation. Joan also looked a trifle uneasy. She stopped reading just long enough to raise her eyes and frown, then became absorbed in the book again. I got up quietly and pressed her wrist. See you, I said. She shut the book abruptly and straightened in her chair. Where are you going, Ralph? Just stay right where you are, kitten, I said. I'll be back in a moment. That screeching noise, she said. I was wondering about it, Ralph. I guess you'd better see what's causing it. So she'd been disturbed by it, too, and ignoring it had taken a deliberate effort of will, which I hadn't realized she was exerting. It made me happy in an odd inner way, because it proved again what I'd always known, that we were very close, and there were currents of understanding which flowed back and forth between us, and I had a wife I could be proud of. It's probably nothing, I said, not wanting to alarm her. But I might as well take a look. It seems to be coming from the chart room. All right, she said and squeezed my hand. I had to open and shut two sliding panels and pass along a blank-walled passageway to get to the chart room. To my surprise, the door was standing open. It's usually kept locked, 
because there's no section of the skyship where a man who didn't want anyone to suspect that he harbored within himself the most dangerous kind of destructive impulses could do more damage. The shattering of a photoelectric eye, or the ripping out of a single live connection in just one of the four cybernetic robots, could have wrecked the rocket and sent it spiraling down through the space gulfs in flaming ruin, depending on just how vital to the robot's functioning the shattered part happened to be. There was a security alert system which would have to be disconnected first, but anyone resourceful enough to get inside the chart room at all, without identification disc proof that he had a right to be there, would have known precisely how to take care of the preliminary obstacles. I didn't waste any time in getting to that wide-open door, for my mind was racing on ahead of me like the most alerted kind of alarm system, its jaggling warning me that every second counted, and that what I dreaded most might very well be true. What I actually saw when I reached the doorway and stood there looking in took me completely by surprise. It wasn't the way I'd pictured it at all. But it was just as unnerving, just as much of a threat to the safety of the ship, and it startled me so I must have looked almost comic standing there idiot still. But there was nothing comic about what I saw. The woman I'd almost asked to go to Mars with me was staring straight at me, her hair still piled up high, a look of terrified appeal in her eyes. She wasn't alone. She was struggling furiously with a crewman I'd talked to a few times and neither liked nor disliked. A heavy-set man with high cheekbones and pale blue eyes. He was gripping her savagely by the wrist and they were both backed up against one of the robot giants. Suddenly, as I stared, her head went back, and a convulsive trembling seized her. She began to scream. End of chapter 6